0: From the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, this is Better Off, a podcast about the biggest public health problems we face today.
1: I think we all recognize that there isn't really going to be a new normal. (laughs) We're sort of in this dynamic transitional state.
0: And the people innovating to create public health solutions.
1: We should be thinking about how every type of space needs to potentially change, adapt, because of what we've learned.
0: I'm your host. Anna Fisher Pinkert. More than 16% of the U.S. population is over the age of 65, and that percentage is growing as baby boomers age. During the COVID-19 pandemic, seniors were the population most vulnerable to the virus. And during the earliest days of the pandemic, there was an intense and immediate focus on seniors' health and safety. The message was clear. Stay home. Mask up protect your elders. But there was less discussion about seniors' mental health. I wanted to find out what we can learn from the pandemic, about what allows seniors to flourish, and what challenges older adults face when it comes to mental health. So this week, we're better off with Olivia Okereke, expert in aging and mental health.
1: Well, I think that the mental health challenges that older adults have faced during the pandemic have evolved in nature over the last year.
0: Dr. Okereke wears a lot of hats.
1: I am director of geriatric psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and I'm an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and associate professor in epidemiology at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health.
0: At first, she and her colleagues mostly saw seniors experiencing acute anxiety related to the dangers of the virus itself. But over time, that changed.
1: What emerged over time were problems with grief, isolation, and loneliness as people experienced losses, either in their family members, because of other older adults who had been very hard hit by the pandemic in terms of deaths or because of losses they may have experienced by getting ill and surviving, but surviving with impairments and changes in their function. And then, of course, the social isolation related to strict social distancing requirements, especially during the earliest phases of the pandemic.
0: But there's an interesting twist in this story. There are some ways in which older adults are actually doing better than younger adults when it comes to mental
1: health. Compared to younger people on the whole, older adults have been more psychologically resilient. While anxiety and depression are clearly issues that people have been dealing with during this pandemic, compared to younger people, older adults have seen not as, as dramatic an increase in in some of the mental health challenges of anxiety and depression that have been seen in young adults. So that is notable. There's been publications about this in the research literature, but really not that many.
0: Psychological resilience can be defined in a few different ways, but in essence, it's your ability to manage challenges in life, to maintain optimism when things go wrong.
1: Sometimes people talk about the term grit that's, that's kind of become a trendy word. It
0: shouldn't be surprising that older adults, generally speaking, have displayed this resilience throughout the pandemic.
1: Through their life experiences, they may have had more time, more opportunities to develop resilience techniques. You know, taking a step back, taking perspective, you know, taking their time and just sort of an ability to uh, believe that this too shall pass, all those kinds of things. Uh, that may inform the experiences of older adults might be contributing to this finding.
0: Last year, I heard a lot of stories that bore this out. Millennials, now in their 30s, were arguing with their 65-plus boomer parents to take the virus more seriously, to stay socially distant and wear masks. In March 2020, Guardian columnist Bridget Delaney tweeted, in an unsettling reversal of my teenage years, I am now yelling at my parents for going out. But for many boomers, what might seem like a carefree or even careless attitude toward COVID was driven by a different set of worries.
1: So for example, many older people, especially those dealing with health challenges, may have found it anxiety provoking going into these strict social distancing requirements because they didn't know well how many more thanksgiving holidays will i get with family how many more graduations will i be able to attend a family member so there there is the sense that there isn't unlimited time and maybe there isn't enough time for waiting for this all to pass you know so that is kind of balanced with you know some older adults kind of you know pulling on that sort of resilience of saying, you know, we can wait we we can wade our way through this and it will pass. So so you know you can kind of see both halves to that. Um that some people were experiencing a feeling of urgency around what was going on with the pandemic and how it was affecting their lives.
0: Not everyone fits into these broad generational trends. Psychological resilience varies from person to person. There are things we can do to support our resilience as we age And most of them overlap with the things that we should do to maintain mental health during the pandemic.
1: So for example, one of the things that seems to be protective, both in terms of reducing the risk of mood decline and depression during aging, as well as protective for folks right now is exercise and lifestyle habits. My colleagues and I have done a fair amount of work finding that people who participate more regularly in exercise are significantly less likely to develop depression in later life. And certainly one of the recommendations that we've been making for people to try to preserve mental wellness during the pandemic is trying, to, trying their best to adhere to routines that involve healthy eating, exercise, and, and, and lifestyle habits, but in particularly physical activity. Another really big ticket item, That also overlaps with some of the recommendations we've made during the pandemic is sleep. So, we have seen that sleep disturbances, you know, difficulty with sleep is not just sort of correlated with poor mood. That if we study it carefully, and and we've done some work on this um, with Harvard Chan affiliated investigators and others, we've seen that sleep difficulty is an independent predictor of people developing depression during aging. And certainly one of the recommendations in terms of self-care that we have focused on uh, during the pandemic is regular sleep.
0: In addition to getting plenty of exercise and sleep, we should all be engaging in more self-care.
1: Whether it's meditation, progressive relaxation and breathing, gratitude, the practice of remembering what one is grateful for, people attending spiritual or religious services, if that is something that's part of their life. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, might protect people or or enhance, I should say, enhance their resilience.
0: As we've said many, many times on this podcast, not everyone is having the same experience with the pandemic. Black, Latinx, and Native communities have had higher rates of death and serious illness from COVID-19.
1: So this has broad implications in terms of how people are experiencing emotionally what this pandemic has meant for them. That said, at least in some of the early months of the pandemic, there, there were still these signals of resilience that we were seeing that individuals, even from more disadvantaged or less privileged backgrounds, if there were community factors or familial factors that tended to enhance sort of cohesion and resilience and, and, and enhance social support or uh, a feeling of, of communality, that that tended to mitigate um, some of the experience of stress.
0: Even though these mitigating factors might exist, people's experience with the pandemic is still shaped by privilege.
1: Anecdotally, I'm speaking about my colleagues you know, in our group, but I, I, I can imagine this pertains to many people who care for older patients. We found in those first several months of the pandemic, there was not a single appointment that we would have where um, even with all the other issues related to mental health specifically we were discussing, we wouldn't ask you know, some questions about, tell us, how are you getting food? How are you getting meals? How are you accessing your medication? Even sort of putting people in touch with resources for medication and food delivery, because that's a major issue, especially if there's any kind of pre-existing food insecurity. It's just was, you know, potentially increased by COVID. So I just think there's a whole range of ways that we've seen inequalities, healthcare inequalities, economic inequalities play out in this pandemic.
0: Some patients also found it challenging to access care at all once their visits with their primary care doctors, therapists, and psychiatrists went from in-person appointments to telehealth.
1: Minority patients were more likely to see a drop-off related to healthcare utilization because of maybe lower access to using video technology to do video telehealth. So it was just kind of like a lower proportion of those visits being completed using those platforms compared to like say telephone or or just missing appointments.
0: Now I thought the switch to telehealth would be solely a negative thing for seniors. I have trouble getting into my telehealth appointments and I think I'm pretty tech savvy. So I figured it must be harder for people in their 70s or 80s. But again, there's a twist. It turns out that telehealth has some unexpected benefits for seniors seeking out mental health care.
1: There's some there's some challenges to be worked out But overall, it's made a positive difference in a number of ways. So access is probably first and foremost the most important way. So it can mitigate care disruptions. So even if people are not seeing us face to face in the office, we can keep the appointments going. We can keep the continuity going. Because as you may know, and this is one of the the earliest red flags that went out about COVID during the pandemic, there was such concern about people missing or delaying their routine care appointments and what that might mean uh, down the road, long-term in terms of secondary health consequences. That is yet to play out. We have to see what the long-term impact will be, but folks were definitely missing appointments or delaying appointments. And so to the extent that telehealth uh, was available, it mitigated this in mental health in particular because we are less dependent compared to other specialties on the specific procedures that can only be done in person. So we actually saw in the earliest waves of the pandemic, a huge surge in utilization of our our mental health care services. And some of that may have been, of course, because of people experiencing challenges and stresses and challenges and coping difficulty. Um, But we saw compared, like, for example, let's say compared year on year to utilization levels pre-pandemic, there was actually more utilization. And that was made possible by telemedicine. That would not have been possible without telemedicine. And so we were able to maintain continuity with people who really needed it.
0: But there's even more to it. Olivia Okereke and her colleagues at Mass General surveyed their patients about their experiences with technology during the pandemic, and they found something
1: really unexpected. Many older adults, because out of necessity, right, they had to acquire new skills in technology. The fact that they enhanced their facility with using technology actually increased their sense of self-esteem and self-efficacy. They They had a positive experience because wow they learned this new thing and now they can do it and the benefits went beyond telehealth people weren't just chatting with let's say family members on video chats they were picking up new interests they were participating in social clubs virtually they were going to meetings they were part of music groups book groups all kinds of things they were even starting new activities not just continuing the old activities, such as religious or spiritual services that had moved online, which was something they would have done previously, that they were participating in new things, perhaps aided by the sense of confidence that they got for, from being able to use these, these new technologies. So, so even though there was unevenness, right, there was inequalities in terms of access to some of these things, for those people who were able to mobilize it to any extent, Um, It did seem for older adults, there were these unanticipated benefits. And I think that's something we should continue to kind of look at. As
0: a new parent, I also really enjoyed this change. I tried out a virtual embroidery class while my daughter took a nap. I heard one of my favorite musicians perform while I cooked dinner. I probably could have sought these things out before the pandemic, but they became more common in the last year and easier to find. What's unclear is whether these virtual communal experiences are going to stick around as we enter a new normal. As concert venues reopen, restaurants reopen, what happens to people who struggled to enter those spaces and navigate them in the first place?
1: I think we all recognize that there isn't really going to be a new normal. (laughs) We're sort of in this dynamic transitional state, right? It's this dynamic evolving space and, and we're moving to a new place. And so it doesn't have to look like exactly where we were before, pre-pandemic. And you do wonder about, you know, maybe some of these developments, these positive developments related to use of technology among older adults are something that can be preserved because you can see the advantages of this for homebound older adults. A notable percentage of older adults who for a variety of reasons are largely homebound and it's a source of isolation. Is a source of n- numerous challenges and these changes that were brought about by necessity, by the pandemic and social distancing, may actually have a role moving forward and helping folks. As
0: of July 2021, 88% of seniors in the U.S. have been vaccinated against COVID-19. This summer, while some are eagerly visiting loved ones and returning to in-person activities, others are anxious about variants or just having trouble adjusting. So if you know an older person who's struggling, how do you help?
1: Well, I think we could kind of, you know, follow some of the same recommendations, interestingly enough, that we were using when the pandemic had first begun. So, for example, when the pandemic had started and many older adults were faced with having to use technology, right, order things online, medication, food, groceries, whatever, things that they had not previously done. It will be important for friends, family, healthcare providers, anybody who's part of the support network of that person to help decompress the task load, right? I think a parallel process may apply here.
0: In other words, if you helped your parents or a loved one get signed up for grocery delivery at the start of the pandemic, maybe now is the time to check in again on whether they need help getting food medications or just getting around.
1: And that's particularly important for older adults because even even as older adults are aging without any issues let's say of a clinical, you know, dementia or Alzheimer or anything like that, even with just normal aging, there are changes to the way cognition works. There are changes to the way, you know, the processing and speed of how people think through things. And when people are kind of flooded with a lot of new things that they have to do, this kind of ramps up the task load for older adults in a way that's harder for them potentially to manage than younger people. And so this whole idea of decompressing that, um, the supports, the family, the friends, taking on that auxiliary role of decompressing the task, task load, that's pretty big. That is something that can do a lot of good for people.
0: If you are one of the people who woke up at 5 a.m. to hunt for a COVID-19 vaccination appointment for a senior, you've already done something to lower the task load for that person.
1: You can just imagine going to those sites and constantly checking or refreshing and seeing you know, what's coming up. I mean, it's something that could be really overwhelming as just yet another thing that has to be done for an older adult who already is going to have you know, just by nature of some of the cognitive changes that happen with aging, a little bit um, less um, tolerance of all the multitasking that that would involve. That's a perfect example of the kind of thing that it seems small, some things seem small, some things seem big, but, you know, all those things really add up in terms of doing a real benefit. Now, friends and
0: family can only do so much. Over the last several months, everyone has had a lot on their plates, but people in caregiving roles have had a special burden. The pandemic has made it incredibly obvious that there are big gaps in how healthcare systems serve seniors.
1: So, in the home, outside in the community, the outpatient setting of healthcare, in the inpatient setting, we should be thinking about how every type of space needs to potentially change, adapt, because of what we've learned about how this, this pandemic has played out in terms of the mental health challenges.
0: So if we go back to an issue we talked about earlier, access to health care, the amount that friends and family can help you get access to care is shaped by privilege, too. Figuring out how to connect a loved one with the right specialists or get them to appointments, that takes time and resources
1: essentially what what a lot of family and friends have done is they've been navigators, right? They've been de facto healthcare navigators, okay? And maybe what needs to happen at a policy level is that this becomes more formalized so that it's not left to chance that some people have more help than others in navigating this very complex space of using the technologies they need, getting online to check appointments, get vaccines, it should be less left to chance and perhaps more formalized what it is that these de facto informal healthcare navigators, which are typically friends and family, are doing.
0: But the bigger issue of racial inequity in our healthcare system, that's going to take change at every level.
1: I think another larger lesson learned in terms of policy pertains to. The consequence of, of many years, many decades of insufficient attention to the true meaning of the racial ethnic inequities in this country, when you see it play out in the way that it did with COVID, this was catastrophic. You see threefold mortality rates. This is not something that's subtle, right? These inequalities just have broad and deep implications for health, mental health for physical health. And there need to be structural changes to mitigate these health impacts of structural racism or structural inequalities, right? That played out in a terrifying way with the COVID pandemic. Vaccines are great, we're, we're getting them mobilized and getting people vaccinated, but we are not out of the woods. So this is an evolving space, and I acknowledge that. But I do think that there are still some policy lessons that we can take away based on what we know now.
0: If we really want to protect our elders, it will take more than vaccines, more than face masks and staying six feet apart. It's going to mean ensuring everyone, not just the privileged few, can age with dignity and with resilience. That's all for this week. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Harvard Chan SPH. Subscribe to Better Off in your favorite podcast app. If you like the show so far, rate and review us and tell your friends about the podcast too. We're Better Off with our team, Chief Communications Officer Todd Datz, Associate Creative Director Ben Wallace, and Production Assistant Brian Lee. I'm Anna Fisher Pinkert, host and producer of Better Off, a podcast of the Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health.